Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. This week, I'm going to explain when and why we should reach out to our therapist in between sessions. I'm also going to talk about whether or not therapists judge our kind of quote unquote crazy thoughts or behaviors and the difference between fidgeting and self-injury. Then I'm going to talk about dissociation, the different diagnoses, symptoms, and how we can work through it. And finally, I'm going to talk about why it can be hard for us to want to separate from our abusers and some nice ways of telling people, I love you, but I can't be there for you right now. Without further ado, let's jump into question number one. This question says, hi, Katie, I love your podcast and can't thank you enough for helping me gain perspective and understand more about all things mental health. Yay, I'm so glad. This is a quick question. My therapist always says that I can reach out to her anytime that I'm in crisis. I never do when I'm feeling really down, anxious, and or dysregulated because I'm not and never have been suicidal or have self-harming behaviors. But I've gone through some really tough emotions and thoughts when I wanted to reach out. What does it mean to be in crisis? And when is it appropriate to reach out to your therapist outside of your sessions? Thanks for all that you do. Now, I have another add-on or two, um, but let's jump into this first. Now, to be in crisis Sometimes I kind of hate that we use terms like this because there's not like a definitive definition because everyone's experience is going to be different. But here's what I would say constitutes a crisis. When we don't feel like we're able to use any of the coping skills, we feel that our mood or our symptoms, like it's it's going, going bad fast, right? Our mood is going down, our symptoms are getting worse, and we just feel like nothing we do is helping us. That's a time to reach out to your therapist. When we're worried for our safety, I know this person in particular said they don't have any, you know, suicidal ideation or self-harm urges, but if we do, that's a time to reach out. Um, If we feel like emotionally overwhelmed, like a good example of me being in crisis would be when my dad went in the hospital right before he passed away, I knew it was bad and I was in crisis. I didn't, I didn't know what to talk about and I was just like a mess. If you feel like that, I feel like I'm just a mess. I don't even know what to do with this. Everything feels overwhelming. That to me is in crisis. But I do encourage all of you, if your therapist uses terminology and says, hey, I want you to do this when you feel like you're in crisis or I want you to reach out when you think that you, you know, your symptoms have gotten too bad, like have them define that. It's okay to say, hey, what do you mean by too bad? Or what do you define as a crisis? Because I have a hard time figuring that out. It's okay to ask. But I honestly believe that if we feel in any way like things aren't good or in control, we feel we feel overwhelmed and nothing that our therapist has told us to do is working, that's when we reach out to them. And that's why we're there in between sessions. And that's why she said to reach out in between sessions. It doesn't have to be the worst of the worst of the worst. As a therapist, we'd rather you reach out sooner rather than later, because that's when we can kind of still assist you, especially over the phone. We can offer some assistance and then maybe we can schedule an appointment earlier or do a quick phone check-in. You know, there's things that we can do and I've done for many of my patients over the years. Um, that's when it's appropriate to reach out, okay? I know that's not a clear-cut answer, but that's the best that we can do because crisis to one person may not be a crisis to another. So I don't want to make anybody feel like if you are, if you don't feel good and you feel like it's getting worse and you don't know what to do, that you can't reach out because that's when you should reach out. Now, a comment says, I've also been wondering the same thing. 
I struggle with self-harm and my therapist told me that whenever I have strong urges, I can and should reach out to her. However, I'm always terrified of doing so because I don't want it to be a big deal. That's interesting. Have my parents find out or for me, worst of all, bother her in any way. I feel like she'll think that I'm annoying and burdensome and she'll hate me for actually reaching out to her because sometimes people just say you can reach out just as a kind of insignificant gesture. We'll talk about that too. And they don't really mean it literally. So every time I have really strong urges, I just do it without telling my therapist. Is this how it's supposed to be? No. And how can I communicate this to my therapist? Also for suicidal ideation, when is it bad enough to reach out to my therapist? What if you're just super overwhelmed with the idea of it planning, but don't actually have any means to physically do it? Thank you so very much. Of course. Now, the first piece that I want to dive into is the the thought that we don't want it to be that big of a deal. And most of all, or worst of all, is that we would be annoying or burdensome to them. And I believe there's something in your past, in your upbringing, that makes you believe that speaking up, reaching out, asking for help is not okay. Taking up space, being a quote unquote, making it a big deal. I think you might've been told you're too sensitive, too much, something like that. And I would let your therapist know that these are the thoughts you're having because as a therapist, this gives me a lot of information on where we should be working, what we should be addressing and kind of challenging because that's not true. Your therapist is going to take what you're saying and they're going to assess for themselves. They're not going to assume it's you're making it a big deal or you're not burdening them. We want to know because the more we know, the better we can help you, okay? And also, another piece in here said that, you know, they're afraid that their therapist might have just said that you can reach out as a kind of insignificant gesture. No, 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 no. Maybe in our regular relationships, this could happen. But when it comes to a therapist, we're never going to offer something that we don't want to actually give to you. Boundaries, clear communication, structure is all key to a healthy, happy, therapeutic relationship. There's no way I'm going to tell a patient, sure, you can text me or reach out when I don't mean that they can. That's not insignificant. That's a big deal. And if I'm not available, if I'm going to be out of the country or out of town, I'm not going to tell them that. That is just not how it works. So don't worry about that. I know that we can worry about that in our regular, like day-to-day relationships, friendships, family, stuff like that. That's fine and fair. But when it comes to a therapist, we're not going to offer a support that we're not readily able to give. So don't worry about that. Um, And then the question of, is this how it's supposed to be? And how can I communicate this to my therapist? I think in all honesty, if you can tell your therapist, hey, let's start off with the stuff I just mentioned. Like let's, instead of talking about the self-harm urges or suicidal ideation, let's say, I know you told me to reach out, but even when I'm having a tough time, I don't because I don't want to be a burden and I worry that maybe reaching out is like you don't really have the time, but you offered it. Like tell them how you told it to me because we need to figure out where that's coming from because it's not coming from your therapist. This is like an old story or an old narrative that you keep telling yourself over and over and it comes from somewhere. So if I was your therapist, I'd, I'd be glad that you told me and I'd be interested in digging into the why behind it. Why do you think that? Why do you worry that you're a burden? Why do you think you're burdening me? Why do you worry that... You know, you're going to make it into a big deal. What if it is a big deal? Your safety and security and health is a big deal. You know, I'd want to dive into that a little bit. And then the last part of this where it says for suicidal ideation, when is it bad enough to reach out for help? If we feel like it's getting worse and stronger and the things that we're trying out are not working, that is enough to reach out to our therapist. We don't have to have the threat be imminent or have the means to do it. If we feel like the the thoughts are getting stronger and stronger and stronger, 
and the things that used to help us aren't helping us anymore, we should speak up and reach out, okay? We're here to help you guys. I know the relationship with a therapist is kind of weird and it's different, but we, we're here to support. So let us support you. I know it feels different than your other relationships, but that's what makes it so magical. And we're not going to offer something that we can't give. So speak up, reach out. We're here for you. Okay. Moving on to question number two, this question says, hi, Katie. My question is what goes on in a therapist's head when a client is saying something that the therapist thinks is quote unquote crazy? Does a therapist ever have a hard time not judging or showing judgment to their client by accident? Thanks for all you do and the time and effort you put in every week. Of course. Another comment says, I'm going to read them all because they're all kind of tied. Do therapists sometimes feel like they have to pull us into reality? And another comment says, does a therapist ever have to be stern in that situation to give the client a reality check in order for them to grow and move on from the situation? If so, when? Okay. First of all, I don't ever think of things as like crazy. I will say that sometimes I am like shocked by a client's lack of emotional response to something that I think is traumatizing or terrifying. Like I've had patients tell me the most horrific stories of childhood abuse and they tell it like, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, no, I'm like shocked by their in their their lack of response. Um, I also have patients who have like delusions about things. Like I'm just sure that they're thinking about this, you know, and I know it's not true. I'm not, in that moment, I honestly can tell you that I'm not judging them. I don't struggle to show that I'm not because it's not happening. I'm more curious. And when I tell you to be curious and not judgmental, I by all means like practice that as a therapist. Now, as a regular person with myself and my own like therapy stuff, do I not judge? I judge myself all the time. Let's be honest. But as a therapist, I don't judge my clients. And I don't know. This made me think like, I don't know why I can't do that for myself and I can do it for other people. <laughs> Probably should bring that up with my therapist, right? But we don't. I don't have a hard time not sh- not judging or sh- not showing judgment. I'm just more curious about it. I feel like the things that we think of as crazy, like beliefs that we have or assumptions that we make or even things that we like to do, like if we have a kink or a funny thing that soothes us, none of that is like a space for judgment. It's all about like where it comes from, why we've started it. Again, the curiosity, the understanding. I always seek to understand and I I truly find humans incredibly, incredibly interesting creatures. We are fascinating the ways that we manage and mitigate or navigate life's difficulties and the ways that we cope is endless. And so I might be surprised by someone's like lack of emotional response to something or surprised with their intense emotional response, but that's not me judging. That's just the fact that I'm seeing it from an outside perspective, right? I'm not in it and I don't have the old beliefs or the old assumptions that you might have about your situation, right? Um, But I can honestly and earnestly tell you that I don't judge and I don't struggle to not show that I judge. Um, Yeah, I I can't even think of a time when I've felt that way. So, and for the questions about like, do I feel like I have to pull them into reality? Yes and no. I do think there's obviously that innate urge. You're like, ooh, this is not correct. Like you're, like my borderline patients, their intense fear of abandonment or the the ways that they feel slighted, they get so intense, their like inner rage, I know is an overreaction because they're sensitive to that. Um, so I do feel the urge to to challenge that. But it's all in due time and it's all with good pacing. We can't pull people into reality. Maybe it's because we're trained, like 
I worked in the hospital system for many years and I dealt with a lot of you know, schizoaffective and schizophrenic patients who had a lot of psychosis. So they had delusions, they had hallucinations. And delusions in particular are these firmly held false beliefs. And there's nothing I can say or do to change them. And I feel like maybe that is why I don't feel the urge. Like I know that nothing I say is going to change your belief about yourself. I have to get you to a place where you can discover it on your own. And I find that's kind of like the magic of therapy. That's like why seeing a therapist can can be so fun and interesting because everybody's different and the ways to get them to reach that like aha moment. It's a nice, interesting challenge. Um, so I don't feel like I have to pull you into reality, but I do want to slowly guide you at a pace that feels okay for you. And then the last component asks about if I feel like I need to be stern and give them a reality check. Not necessarily. It depends on if I think it's going to be helpful and beneficial for you overall. If you were one of my schizophrenic patients and I sensed a delusion that's still in there speaking through you, I might mention, hey, that sounds like that thing that we were working on. Do you agree? And see if you agree. Um, I might challenge you to try to see it for what it is, but I'm not going to really be stern because I find when patients actually share what they think is their internal crazy, that's them being vulnerable. And it's a really important time for me as a therapist to show up softly for them and to hold the space and to let them know that it's okay to say anything here. And I think the acceptance piece is honestly more healing than the redirection or pushing you into, you know, um, actual reality. Sometimes it's important for me to sit in that uh, altered reality, if you want to call it that, with you and tell you I kind of understand why we're here. Like, oh, you're worried you're going to be too much and that's the belief that you have about yourself, hmm, I'm going to sit there with you. I'm going to let you explain that to me. And I think some of that can be really helpful to help us actually grow and move on versus the alternative, which is kind of like strong arming or being really aggressive. Now, that's not to say that I'm not a tough love therapist and wouldn't maybe challenge you to at least call it what it is, but I'm not going to push you to move through it quickly. I hope that makes sense. Okay. And the only reason that someone says, if so, when, when would I like be really stern the only time I'd ever be stern with a patient is when I think they need a little bit of that tough love. Like, hey, you're doing that thing again. If we've been working on something and we've already come to the conclusion that it's not healthy, it'd be like akin to um, a patient who finally distanced themselves from their abusive ex and then was thinking about going back. I might be stern then. But that's not about like the crazy or the judging. It's more about like, that was not healthy for you. We already decided that you'd moved out of it what the hell's going on? And I might push them and I might even say, what the hell's going on? How come we're here again? Like I might be that way, but that's only because something, you know, again, I, I was still, even in my head when I say that, I'm like, I still would want to be curious. Like what's drawing you back? What's, what's happening now that makes that seem so, so attractive. You know, again, curiosity first. I feel like as a therapist, you have to lead with curiosity, not with judgment, not with force. That's never going to help your patients. Moving on to question number three, this question says, hey, Katie, my question is about anxiety, fidgeting, and self-injury. In my therapy sessions, especially if we're talking about a hard topic, I tend to pinch and scratch my hands to the point where I leave red marks and sometimes bruises on them. I don't realize I'm doing it because I'm so focused on the topic at hand and explaining my thoughts clearly to my therapist. Is this just anxiety or is this self-injury? Either way, I don't know if it's bad or typical or just plain fidgeting. Thanks for everything. And there's a couple add-ons here. I think there's just one. Um, a lot of it has to do with the motive. 
But in this case, I, I find and I've heard from a lot of you that this is something you do. You you clench onto your arms. I've heard from a lot of you do that on forearms, on your biceps, and like really dig in. One of my, um, a friend of mine back in college used to pick at her cuticles until they bleed, and she would just do it constantly. And so I think a lot of it is anxiety and fidgeting, especially because you're not even aware you're doing it. But self-injury, we have to understand, is a way to cope. So if if doing that makes you feel better and you're more able to continue talking, then I might say it teeters on the self-injury piece. But it seems very, I don't know, because also my self-injury patients won't even know they're doing it. I guess you'd have to consider for yourself, like being honest with yourself, where you think it, it comes from. Is it something that we've just always done? Like I used to chew my nails as a kid or pick at my nails. It was definitely like anxiety and fidgeting. Just didn't know that's what it was when I was doing it when I was little. Um, But self-injury kind of has a different space to it. And only you'll know this. Do you get a relief from it? Does it um, allow you to numb out? The the fact that you don't even notice you're doing it and I don't know what you feel afterward, but I, I suspect this is anxiety and fidgeting in that way not self-injury, but only you would know. Um, If you had to wear gloves, like if you put on like winter gloves, like little, even little cotton gloves in session, could you still talk about that? And could you, is that preventing you from feeling your feelings, like the the picking and the fidgeting? I don't know. Those are all things that I'd want you to spend some time to kind of answer for yourself because I don't know your experience. You know your experience, right? So I think the, the kind of difference is that fidgeting doesn't always harm us. And it doesn't, it's not a means to numb out. It's a way to kind of keep ourselves busy to assuage some of that anxiety. But when it gets really intense and it actually is harming us, and you said you're like bruising and stuff like that, like that makes me, it's like teetering on the edge. Um, Then I see it as self-injury because again, I know this is convoluted, but just hear me out. Fidgeting and anxiety help soothe us so we can keep going, doing whatever. Self-injury is a way to harm ourselves so we can't focus on anything else but the injury itself, okay? It's a coping skill. It's a way for us to think about something different or to to show the pain that we're really feeling inside. It's like a silent screaming type of thing, right? Um, it also could be a way that we tend to the wound because we felt so neglected as a child. This is a way for us to take care of ourselves. So I guess considering where it comes from, right? Because you could see how they run into each other. The fidgeting could move into self-injury or self-injurious behavior and they kind of overlap a little bit and so just consider where it comes from for you does it help you numb out does it help you do focus on it because that's where it doesn't sound like you do it doesn't sound like it serves any purpose other than the fact that you do it without realizing and i will tell you that a lot of my patients will do stuff like that when they talk about trauma or really hard topics because they're so uncomfortable in their skin they almost want to rip it off and so they'll do like this type of thing and they don't even realize they're doing it. Um, and I would, instead of trying to label that as fidgeting or a self-injurious behavior, I would probably label it as a trauma response. And in my notes, I'd say something like, you know, client displayed intense physical discomfort with the topic, gripping at arms, um, digging fingernails in, when made aware, was able to stop. You know, that's what I would, I would say something like that. I wouldn't call it, you know, self-injurious behavior. Um, but only you know where it's coming from and if you do it outside of therapy or not. Because in my experience, self-injurious behavior doesn't only happen in one situation. 
It happens all different types of situations. Now, there's a comment on this as I have a similar habit. Can it be anxious fidgeting sometimes and self-injury other times? Yes, because sometimes it's just something to keep my hands busy. That's fidgeting. But other times it's a focus on the pain. That's self-injury. Beautiful. I couldn't have said it better. Um, can the same action act as two different things depending on my motive? 100%. It's all about motive. Um, I hope that makes sense. Thanks. Yes, that's super clear. Thank you so much. That is more clear than what I said before. So yes, when we're trying to differentiate between fidgeting and self-injury, it comes down to motive. It's all about what drives the behavior because self-injury is done, it's a way to cope. And fidgeting is something to keep your hands busy, which you could say, oh, that is how I cope with my anxiety. Self-injury is more than that, right? It, it's, not, um, it's not about just keeping our hands busy. It's about numbing out with the pain. We actually need to inflict the pain in order to feel the relief. So yes. Thank you for adding that in. That was incredibly helpful. With that, let's move on to question number four. And it says, hey, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I dissociate a lot. Sometimes I do things and I have no memory of it. Thankfully, nothing bad. A lot of times when I dissociate, I become a little girl. She emails my therapist, colors Winnie the Pooh pictures for her. Sometimes I'm like a very angry teenager. I don't have DID that we know of, but something is happening. It sounds a little dissociative, maybe DID adjacent. There are also times that I feel as if I'm not really me being a mom to my kids, but I cover it so well that they have no idea something is wrong with their mom. This weekend, all I can do is color in order to not mentally disappear. How would you help your client to be able to work through trauma without dissociating? As soon as I begin to feel any real emotion, I dissociate. What should I do? And there's a bunch of add-ons. There's a lot to talk about here, but let's start with this one. Now, it does sound a little DID because it sounds like you have different parts of yourself that are hanging out there. And if you don't know, when we have dissociative identity disorder or DID used to be called multiple personality disorder, it means we have multiple alters is what a lot of people call them. But you could say different parts of yourself if that sounds more real for you. But essentially, we have these like completely different pieces of ourselves that show up in situations like a little girl or angry teenager. Um, part of me even feels like the parts work that I'm doing in my own therapy like the video I had that went live a couple weeks ago, um, it's similar to this. So I can I can see what you mean. Um, but just be honest with your therapist about this. Now, when it comes to the fact that you mentally disappear if you try to feel feelings, we dissociation is our knee-jerk response. We do it all the time. We know how to do it. We can do it so easily. We do it, we might even be dissociated now, right? It's happening constantly. What do I do? I work with my patients to try to find some ways to regulate their system. Um, this sounds really crazy, but their cold plunges are a thing now and they're very popular. Um, and I would encourage if you have access to one, or if you can take a cold shower, step in the cold water, dunk yourself, dunk your face into a cold, uh, sink full of water. I might have you try some of that. I might have you do full body shakes. I might have you, the coloring's interesting because coloring's like repetitive and that's very soothing to our nervous system. So I might have you try other things like, and this is going to sound silly, but like, vacuuming, walking, folding clothes, putting um, dishes away. There's a lot of things that are like repetitive motions to do. To, 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 to. Um, if you have a treadmill, you could walk on a treadmill. Um, even just like doing things like this, like rubbing our arms. If you're just listening, I'm like rubbing up and down like my bicep part of my arm. We can do some things like that to try to soothe our system. And my whole goal for you would be to get you to a place where the dissociation isn't happening with such frequency. 
or speed. It sounds like it just happens all the time. And we're not going to be able to process any traumas or get into any emotional responses if that's happening. And so we need to be able to regulate. And there's a lot of, we could do vagus nerve stimulation. I have an old video about it. Um, you can look up vagus nerve stimulation, Katie Morton, it'll come up. Um, there could be a lot of different things we can do, but those are just some of them. I mean, there's also somatic releases. I feel like that's a little too intense. I know that's incredibly popular on TikTok right now. I'm working on a video about it, but find something that helps. Coloring helps. Let's do that one. Let's have that one ever ready, but we're going to try some other things too, because I want you to feel like you can be grounded. I've also talked about like counting colors. Like if you look around the room, how many things are blue or green or black? Tell me. Um, you can do the alphabet game. I'm looking around for something that starts with the letter A, something that starts with the letter B, C, and so on. We're going to have to find ways to keep you here and to stop you from dissociating that doesn't feel terribly, terribly uncomfortable. And that's where I would begin our work. I not We're not going to be able to process trauma or get into emotions yet because it's too intense. And that's okay. We just have to meet you where you're at. Okay. So let your therapist know this is happening and, and tell them you need to work on your resources or your coping skills, or your grounding techniques. Any of those words will, will help ensure that you get the right help. Now, another comment said, as an add-on, I was so dissociated as a child during sexual abuse. I had absolutely no memory of it until the past few years. I'm so sorry. But I still use dissociation to deal with many things that are scary or uncomfortable. It's my safe place in my mind, I guess. But I'm slowly changing this behavior. Is it bad to miss it and still want to use it when I feel overwhelmed? No, not at all. It is your safe place. It's There's comfort in it for a lot of us. I know I talk about how uncomfortable it can be because most people don't feel like they have any control over it. Like the person who asked this question before, they just like dissociate all the time, bop, 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 bop. And it can feel really overwhelming. But for those of us who kind of a handle have a handle on it and don't go into it with such, I don't know, lack of control of it, I guess, or it just like doesn't happen, like knee-jerk reaction, we can miss the the safety and security of it. And I would encourage you to talk with your therapist about missing it and what it gave to you. It might even be helpful to journal, like what does what does your dissociation give to you that you can't find without it? And then I might challenge you, are there, is there one attribute of dissociation that we can fill with things here? Like what I mean by that is like, if if we feel like our dissociation gives us this safe place that the real world doesn't, what about that safe place? Like, is it that no one can get to us? Okay, could we, when we want to dissociate, could we instead go into our closet and shut the door? Sit on the floor, would that feel better? I don't know, I'm just throwing something out there. Could we do some of our grounding techniques? Can we get that same physical and emotional response that we get with dissociation without actually doing it, just out of curiosity. But there's nothing wrong with it. And I don't I don't ever have a problem with my patients returning to it every so often, as long as it doesn't increase in frequency and we don't try to find other ways to cope in the meantime. Because the goal is to not dissociate very often, only when essentially we have no other option. Like when something really overwhelming is happening and we don't know how to cope, then there's no shame or blame or judgment with dissociation. But the goal is to have you remember your life and to be present for it. And if it's happening all the time, we're not able to do that. Now, there's another add-on that says, Katie, I have a DID diagnosis, member dissociative identity disorder, and I started appropriate therapy late last year, but I'm having such a hard time trusting my new therapist. He's done nothing to warrant this mistrust from me. He is kind and understanding. He doesn't rush, push, poke, or prod, unlike the therapist I went to before him. 
He assures me throughout each session that he has no intention of hurting me or abandoning me. Logically, I understand this, but emotionally, I cannot allow myself to let my guard down. I have lots of parts that would love to talk to him. I can hear and feel them pushing toward the front in therapy, but I use every ounce of energy I have in me to push them back. I'm so afraid he's going to hurt us. It's not like what he's saying isn't something I haven't heard from countless others before. And they've all ended up hurting us. They've all turned out to be liars. They've all abandoned us. Honestly, I don't know how to let him in. I don't know how to let my guard down. Do you have any insight and help? First of all, and yes, I do. Um, You have to talk to him. You've had bad experiences in the past with therapy. And in order for this one to be different, we have to talk about those past bad ones. We have to talk about what the others have said, how it's harmed you and your parts, how you feel very uh, unsafe in therapy as a whole. You know that he hasn't done anything to do to warrant this yet, but you, you have a history. It's just like coming into a new relationship and you're like, hey, I've been cheated on in the past, so I'm a little bit suspicious of things like that. I just want to give you a heads up. That's like you're telling your therapist, hey, I've been like lied to and I felt abandoned by other therapists. We need to come in with that. Talk to them about it. I've had tons of patients have struggles with past therapists, and it's okay to take some time in your therapy now to process that past therapy, uh, I guess almost traumatizing therapeutic experience or experiences, it sounds like, um, so that we can open up because we can't just pretend that this isn't a scary situation. Being in therapy in and of itself feels unsafe. And so it's going to take some time for us to talk about it process it and move forward so that we can talk about it so that we can work with our parts and have them come out and feel okay you know be patient with yourself but let him know that you know you haven't done anything but a lot of other therapists that they never abandoned or hurt us and they have and I feel like they're liars and I'm still very wounded and so I find myself hiding away I feel my parts wanting to come out and talk but I won't let them because I'm worried about what that could mean for us I don't know if we can bounce back again right Lay it all out there. Talk about it. You're not alone. Unfortunately, a lot of us feel that way with our past therapists feeling judged, feeling um, abandoned, feeling misunderstood. And so we need to let him know that that's what's coming up so that then he can help us. And then we can, you know, it's one thing at a time, but talk about that first. Okay. Now, another person has an add-on. I think it's our final add-on. Says, hey, Katie, also related to dissociation, does it matter if we identify with depersonalization or derealization when thinking that we have DID and treatment? There's some aspects that I definitely relate to depersonalization, like feeling cut off from reality, disconnection from body, and fogginess. Other phrases like, I feel like I'm watching myself or like I'm in a movie, don't resonate with me. It seems like my experience is different from others, which I know is valid. When asking my therapist, she says mine seemed more like depersonalization. Dissociation can be a lonely journey journey as well. I've been using dissociation my entire life. Any tips? I feel like I'm the only one and no one understands. I'm already working on body connection, which I'm excited about. Thanks for all that you do. Of course. I don't really think it matters. I know that can sound weird, but it doesn't really matter if we attach more to depersonalization versus derealization. Now, for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, derealization is disconnection from your environment. It means that I can feel like like this person mentions it doesn't resonate with them, like they're in a movie or like they're watching themselves do things. That's like you're removed from it. 
Um, everything can feel really foggy. I've heard some of my patients say like, you know, they just almost felt like they couldn't even get it connected with themselves. They're like watching themselves do things like from a distance. Like again, like you're watching it on a TV or something. Depersonalization is disconnection from self. And this can often feel like almost like we're just floating over ourselves, like watching ourselves do things. I've heard patients f- say that it feels like they're talking through like a wet cloth, like wah, 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 and they can't understand what the person's saying or they're trying to say, and they worry that they're saying stupid things and you just feel disconnected from yourself. Um, but it could also mean that you don't feel the emotions. You feel really numbed out, which is pleasant sometimes. Um, but DPDR, depersonalization, derealization disorder is its own diagnosis and they're clumped together because we can toggle between things and everyone's experience is different. I have patients who will say they go from derealization to depersonalization or both happen at the same time. They feel just incredibly spaced out and foggy. It doesn't actually matter um, because when it comes to the treatment, it's still the same meaning that we're trying to get you back in your body. We're trying to use grounding techniques. We're trying to regulate your nervous system so it doesn't feel the urge to dissociate quite as frequently. And so that's really that, that's really my thoughts about it. And I'm sorry you feel alone with it. You're not. Everyone's experience is different. If anybody feels open or safe enough to share their own experiences, feel free to put them in the comments. Maybe we can help somebody else know that they're not alone with how they feel. Or maybe just this person's question resonated with you. Tell us so that they know they're not alone. Um, because you're not. It, again, it's just experienced so differently person to person. And it depends on a lot on our like how we are as people, what happened to us that causes the dissociation, what our triggers are. There's so many factors. So don't feel like just because yours is different that it's not okay. It's definitely okay. It's definitely dissociation. And it doesn't really matter if it's depersonalization or derealization. Now, um, tips, again, the main tips when it comes to this and dealing with dissociation in any form is to find ways to ground. Um, and that can be, I think the cold water, I know I keep coming back to it, but it time and time again is the most effective. In my experience, if you have others that you think are more effective, I'd love to know. But getting connected to our body can cause dissociation. So a lot of it I try to do that like doesn't have to do with us like stomping our feet, although we can do that. If you can tap into your body, like you feel your butt in your chair, your back against the back of the chair, do you feel your clothes on your body? Do you feel your tag in the back or a hair down your neck? Like you can do that kind of thing too. But I find it's usually easier to do the counting colors, um, the dunking your face in cold water, the body shakes. Those are usually a little bit easier and not easy, but like not as triggering potentially. So you got this. It does get better. Trust me. Stick with it. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hey, Katie, I hope you don't mind me asking this question again as it didn't get picked last time. Of course, ask as many times. I know it it sucks because you can feel like your question is not getting answered. I do my best. I try to go through like some of them that don't have any thumbs ups or anything and pick those so that everybody's getting an opportunity. Okay. This question is, why is it so hard to walk away from your abusers? In my case, it's moving out from home. I'm in my early 20s. I mean, they're not always bad, but I think I would be better if I wasn't so deep in their shit. I agree. Because I constantly have to do something for them, but no one really cares about making my life easier while I'm constantly helping them. I sometimes feel like Cinderella without the ball or the prince. At the same time, I honestly prefer not leaving my home. I'm deeply paranoid about getting kidnapped or other people breaking in when I'm alone. I even dream about being kidnapped. Although I would love meeting up with friends, I prefer doing it at my home because it takes so much out of me to go out and I worry all the time, the hypervigilance. We'll talk about this. 
I am afraid to go to new places that I haven't been to. Not because I fear panic attacks or so, but it frightens me to use buses that I haven't used before to go to a friend's houses. Sometimes even when I have been there before. How does this all fit together with emotional abuse? Shouldn't I be more eager to leave or be gone? This is a great question. And the truth is that, I mean, from a logical standpoint, yes, we should want to get out of our home. If our abusers still live there, why would we want to be there? Of course we should want to leave. But the thing that we're forgetting, there's two big pieces. Number one, hypervigilance is associated with PTSD or complex PTSD, as well as what are known as trauma bonds. Now, there's a beautiful book called The Betrayal Bond. It's in my Amazon store. You can just go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. It's in there. It's like a, it's a beautiful, like blue and purple looking book. Um, Trauma bonds. Let's start there. Trauma bonds are when we bond with our abusers because we hope that by being close to them and connecting with them, they won't hurt us as much. And it's a, it's a protectant. And we do it, it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome, right? We, we feel for our abusers. Oh, but especially because a lot of times when people abuse us or say nasty things, they're like, why do you make me do that to you? They try to blame us. They try to, to push the blame from themselves to, onto us. And over time, we maybe agree with it, right? We're vulnerable. We don't know what to think. And so we're like, oh, okay. It's pretty shitty, but that's how we deal. We cope by assuming, you know, maybe if I was just nicer, okay, I'm just going to be nicer to them. And then they wouldn't have to do that to me. We do anything. We're really adaptive. We'll do anything to not be wounded or harmed again. And so those trauma bonds run deep. And the thought of leaving can feel very bad, very scary. And then let's move into the scary. Keep that in mind. When it comes to PTSD or complex PTSD, one of the key symptoms is hypervigilance. And that's that startle response. We're always on edge. We think somebody's going to hurt us. We're worried someone's going to yell at us, harm us in some way. We're not going to be safe. Like you said, you dream about being kidnapped. You think that people are going to break in. You don't feel safe. And I know you could say, well, I'm harmed in my home already. So why wouldn't I want to leave? Wouldn't it be safer to be out? That What about the thing that you're not remembering or not maybe thinking of is there's a difference between the harm that we know and the harm that we don't know. And we can be comfortable even in a very abusive, unhealthy environment because we know what to expect. And the thought that maybe we could get out of it and things could be better, like we don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know what that feels like. It's kind of going back to, I've had questions in the past about why do I not want to get rid of my depression or why is it scary for me to stop, uh, you know, to be healed from my anxiety or to not use my eating disorder, right? We are comfortable and we know how it feels in this situation. And so that comfortability can be mistaken for safety, even though it's not. And so going out and moving on our own feels very crazy and unsafe and wild because we don't know what to expect. But we know, we do know that the world can be unsafe because we were raised in an abusive household, right? And so you can see that kind of confusion in our nervous system, in our body. My encouragement for you um, is to start working on this in therapy. Because this all fits together with emotional abuse because you you feel terrible when you're at home, but you have PTSD, I'd assume, or complex PTSD. And so going out, we're hypervigilant. We're always looking at the door. We're very concerned. We're very on edge. We always think people are out to get us because in our home growing up, they were. And we're going to have to start untangling that. There's going to be a lot of like 
regulation we're going to have to do with our nervous system, like the body shakes and the cold water and all of that stuff to help us be able to be in our bodies, be able to acknowledge or have an awareness of when we're becoming more dysregulated, like when our hypervigilance is picking up, right? We can't even take a bus that we've taken before. So we can't go to our friend's house. We start to feel overwhelmed, right? We want to be able to get a handle on that, to be able to notice that so that then we can do some of those regulations. Like we can shake it out. We can talk to someone. We can text our therapist. We can put our face in cold water. We can do all sorts of different things. Deep breathing to get us to a place where we can actually make it out of the house and do things. Um, It's going to take some time and some work. I also don't think it's wrong if you're like, hey, I really want to move out. I don't think it's wrong for you to move out and be working on this simultaneously. It might be good for you to have some roommates um, because being alone can be a lot to go from like an abusive household and, you know, can be really overwhelming. Um, If you have some friends that you've known for a long time that you know are healthy and and compassionate for towards you and you can speak to and you can be honest and open with maybe you choose them as roommates um but know that it's it's okay and it's very normal to not be eager to move out or to move on because it's all we know and sometimes it's the devil we know versus the devil we don't right and that doesn't mean that your home is healthy happy and you want to be there we just don't know how to live any other way and everything else feels really scary because of the trauma we've sustained and probably continue to sustain in our home And yeah, we're going to have to get out at some point in order to do the trauma work. But in the meantime, we can find ways of regulating our nervous system and getting more in touch with that dysregulation and when it comes about. But yeah, it's, you're not, you're not weird. Nothing's wrong with you. Again, trauma bonds are intense and that's why there's an entire book about it. And I talk about it even in my book, Traumatized Itself. If you have a copy of that, maybe check that again. Um, I talk about why they exist and how they protect us, but how they inevitably end up harming us again. So yeah, those are my thoughts. I hope it's helpful. And final question, question number six says, hey, Katie, I'm the the friend that people tend to come to when they need to vent. All of my friends and family know that if they need someone, I'll be there. Sometimes though, I get overwhelmed with that. Is there a nice way to explain that I'm not able to listen to them vent right now? Thanks, Katie. Yes. And that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of us can get caught up in, especially us people pleasers, because we love to be the one that people come to and we love to be able to listen and support and empathize. But there are times and we're overwhelmed with our own shit and we don't have any space in our body or brain for that information. And so the best way is when someone says some starts talking to us about something, it starts to get really deep. I'm going to give you some options. First one and one that I try to use a lot is a, I always talk about the hug and roll. It applies here. And that would be something like, I love you so much. And I know you're, I'm so sorry you're going through this, but I'm so, I just am going through my own stuff right now. And I, I just, I don't have the space for it. And I, I can't, I'm just so sorry. I'm overwhelmed. So it's like a hug. I love you so much. I, I love that you feel comfortable coming to me with this. Unfortunately, right now we roll out. I am so overwhelmed with my own life. I just, I can't take on anything else right now, okay? One option, that might be too direct. That might be too much. It's also okay to distance ourselves a little bit from friends if we find that they just dump on us. I don't want you isolating, which I know that's like, it's tricky, but just make sure that you, you know, if if someone like is always just talking about themselves and that's kind of the dynamic of the relationship, 
If you're feeling overwhelmed, let's not see that person, okay? That's another option. But then when it comes to what to say, I think when someone starts talking, let's say, I don't know, let's say one of my girlfriends is talking about a breakup she's going through. I can empathize really quickly. I'm so sorry. Again, we're going to hug and roll, but another version. I'm so sorry you're going through that. And then we take an opportunity to vent about our stuff. And I know that you might be like, what? But I'm supposed to be able to tell them I don't want, I can't be there for them. I can't listen. What's happening in your relationships is that they're one-sided. I'm hypothesizing. I don't know for sure, but that's my guess. They share, you don't. So when someone's sharing, I encourage you to share also. If my friend says, oh, I'm going through this bad breakup, I and let's say I'm struggling with my own relationships, I could say, yeah, it totally sucks. Just like last week. And then I go into my own story. Um, I don't know. Sean. Sean and I got into a disagreement and I didn't know what to do with it. I could just ramble about my own stuff. It's okay to do that. That's actually how relationships really should be. It's kind of give and take. We're both venting. I know there's going to be times when all of us need to vent more than another, but there should be space for all. So that's how we can do it too. We can give ourselves an opportunity to share. Now, One last option, because I know you said, I want to be able to tell them that I can't listen to them vent. I always think a hug and roll is appropriate. So we want to start off by saying something lovely and kind. Um, You know, let's say, I'll pretend it's my friend, Rocio. You know, Rocio, I love you so much. And I, I always pride myself on being able to listen. I'm just in it right now. I'm so sorry. I'm just full. I can't, I just cannot listen and be supportive. I don't have anything in me. I'm worn out. And again, I'm so sorry. It's okay to apologize, right? We want to be able to listen, but we can't. So those are just some options. And hopefully some of that language felt real for you, but I encourage you to put it in your own words. But I really, really, really cannot encourage you enough to know that every relationship should have space for all of its members to vent and to talk and to get support. It doesn't have to be them venting or nobody venting. You should be talking too. They should be able to listen to you. It's okay to take up space. It's okay to speak up. We all need to. And that's what's beautiful about friendships and relationships in general is the the ability to meet each other and listen and support and not feel alone with all we're going through, right? That's like the beautiful part of our community. So give it a try and keep me posted, okay? Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. It really, really does help. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.